yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the writers, directors, producers, production designers, cinematographers, costumers, uh, film editors, sound editors, mixers, uh, composers, authors, you name it, we talk with them and about them. Uh, and it's always a joy, always a pleasure. And I've been jam-packed doing interviews off the show. In addition to the live ones and the pre-records you hear, you've, uh, you hear every week here. Uh, and every week here, if you're listening, obviously you know you can find Behind the Lens every Monday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on AdrenalineRadio.com. Or if you're bored on your computer and you're so inclined, you can go to the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page and you can watch the live stream. There's nothing more than me sitting in a studio, hi, um, with pretty tablescapes. Uh, so take your pick. <laughs> and then after the fact, um, the show becomes goes out in podcast form on BehindTheLensOnline.net, as well as Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, uh, Spreaker, all all of your platforms. So that's where you can find us all. Housekeeping is done for a change. Half the time I forget. Um, a fun show today. Fun and fantasy. Fun and sci-fi. Um, coming up shortly. We have our special guest today, writer, director, producer, Tenny Fairchild, talking about his film, Vikes. An interesting film, and I can't wait to get into this with Tenny. It was shot quite a few years ago, before uh, the events of 2020, before the Black Lives Movement really took hold, before name changes for uh sports teams uh, like the Cleveland Indians, like the Washington Redskins, um, before all of that really became thrust into the forefront, uh, especially d over the past year while everybody was sitting at lo on lockdown from the pandemic. Um, and you can protest and do things from your home. You don't even have to go out in the streets. Uh, but there are a lot of themes and things bubbling up in Vikes, it is a high school coming-of-age story uh, that is the anchors in the film are Aiden Alexander and Sydney Sweeney. Uh, most of you will know Sydney from uh, Fresh Off of Vikes because it was shot a few years ago. She went on to co-star in Sharp Objects, Handmaid's Tale. She even pops up in Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So we're going to be talking to Tenny about Vikes uh, shortly. After Tenny, we're going to head out into space with Voyagers. I love this film. Absolutely love this film. 
Uh, it is written and directed by Neil Berger. Most of you will know Neil best for directing Divergent. Um, let me find the good page of notes. We have so many pages. I know so many of my press colleagues for years have laughed at me about my composition books where all of my interviews are kept. Um, it's the only way I don't lose all the pages. They can't fall out or tear out very easily. Uh, <laughs> but you know, Neil, primarily for Divergent, Limitless, The Illusionist, I love him most for what he did with The Upside with Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart. The adaptation of that film from the French into the English, which was, was adapted from the book. Um, but here he takes, Neil really explores with Voyagers, takes us out into space. Um, ironically, we're talking about this today. Today marks the 60th anniversary of the first man in space, the Russian cosmonaut. Um, 60 years ago today, it's hard to believe because at the same time we're getting news reports today about ingenuity on Mars and they've got to hold up on the helicopter launch on Mars for a few days. Uh, but in that short amount of time, it's, it's amazing. And then you look at a film like Voyagers from Neil that looks at a multi-generational mission out into the stars. And you'll hear my discussions with Neil about that in the pre-recorded interview. You'll hear later in the show. Um, it's really fascinating to actually breed children on Earth, keep them isolated with no human contact or interaction but for one person. And then they get put on a ship that they will be living on so that by the time it reaches its destinations, they will have already become grandparents or older. And the kicker is they've been raised emotionless. And how that come, how we find out about this is part of what unfolds and is at the heartbeat of Voyagers. Um, also, you're going to hear my exclusive with, and this was a real treat, with production designer of Voyagers, Scott Chambliss. Um, you know his work from Guardians of the Galaxy 2, uh, from Tomorrowland, Cowboys and Aliens, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, um, the Alias TV series, one of my vintage faves, Guilty Pleasures, Krippendorf's Tribe, starring Richard Dreyfus. But Scott, working with Neil, and then the third part of the triumvirate, Enrique Chidiak, whose work you know, uh, I think everybody really took note of that when he, uh, along with Dodd Mantle, did the cinematography for Danny Boyle with 127 Hours, starring James Franco. Um, so I've spoken with all three of the gentlemen at great length. Uh, but today, later in the show, you're going to hear my conversation with Neil and following that, my conversation with Scott. Uh, because everything in this film is so interdependent. Uh, what Scott's work does, Enrique can't do his work without Scott's work. Um, this is one of the coolest production designs you'll ever see. Um, I think the last time that we had something with lighting, LED lighting built into a set with five, six miles of lights was for Danny Boyle's Sunshine, which is where a lot of us really started to take note of Chris Evans. Uh, and of course, we all know 
He is Captain America. For all you Falcon and Winter Soldier fans out there, we're all in agreement here. There's only one Captain America, and it is not Walker on Falcon and, and Winter Soldier. Um, but I digress. But is everybody watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier? Wow. We've only got two more shows left. Uh, and it is just uh, the midweek trailer, the midweek tease for this Friday's show just came out today. Disney and Marvel released it today, and I've already got it out on my social media. Uh, I got chills watching it. I parked my car at the radio station this morning. The email was there. I watched the, vi- I watched the teaser for Friday and immediately threw it out there, and I had chills watching it. Um, Disney and Marvel, WandaVision, Falcon and Winter Soldier. I am chomping at the bit for what they bring us with Loki in June. That's the one I've been waiting for. Loki and, of course, Obi-Wan Kenobi. But that's not going to be until next year sometime. Uh, But wow, wow, wow. Um, This is master storytelling on every level. When you look at what Marvel is doing, Marvel and Disney uh, are really, Kevin Feige, bless you, bless you for what you're giving us. But back to today's Behind the Lens. You know, I want to mention a couple films before Tenny uh, calls into the show. We've got a few really fun films that are out there. One, Hollow Point. It's out digitally. And it's directed by Daniel Zarelli, written by Chad Law and Evan Law. It stars, now i got to turn my pages again so I don't screw any of this up. Um, where is my page? Okay. It stars Luke Goss as an attorney vigilante. Jay Moore as a bad guy. Talk about unexpected casting. Juju Chan, Michael Perret, Bill Duke, and I'll see anything with Bill Duke in it. Um, and, of course, DeLon Jay. Uh, DeLon is producer, and he stars as this character called Nolan. Uh, he is a college professor, and his wife and daughter are inadvertently murdered when they happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, he's very unhappy with the justice system because they find out who it is that committed the murders, but because of evidentiary procedures and whatnot, not being held accountable to Nolan's satisfaction, he decides to take the law into his own hands, lands himself in jail, which is where he eventually meets Luke Goss's Hank. Um who only takes cases for those that he believes truly were wronged by the system and should not be incarcerated. And uh, from there, we learn more about Hank's vigilante antics and his group uh, and how they work with a couple cops to bring down uh, the criminals in the Los Angeles area. It is action-packed. It is wonderful. I spoke with Delon. I also spoke with Luke Goss. And I, oh, I love speaking with Luke. Um, and 
he brings so much to the film and to the character of Hank. Um, I'm totally impressed with he is he's since he did traffic for Dion Taylor, um, that caused a shift in his perspective, as he explained to me during our interview the other day, in that he wanted to, to change the kind of roles that he took. He doesn't want to be the bad guy anymore because Luke is so well known for being the bad guy or the one with ambiguity that leans more towards the to evil than good. And it was because of playing the head of a sex trafficking ring in Dion's film of Traffic. He said he did the film because of the importance of the subject matter, but it also caused him to take a look at the roles he was being offered, the roles he was taking, and he made a conscious shift into the different kind of roles that he now pursues and takes. And it, interest, very interesting conversation. You will hear that um, as soon as I send it to uh, my editor. You're going to have a, a slideshow slash video uh, of that one up on BehindTheLensOnline.net. Uh, hopefully sometime later this week. But Hollow Point, for all of you history buffs out there, you're going to be intrigued within the first 10 minutes of the film when you hear the character of Nolan lecturing his his students talking about Hammurabi's code. Uh, so there is your big tip-off for the premise of the film. Another fun film that comes out Friday... It is slick, it is glossy, it is action-packed as well. Vanquish. Vanquish, it stars Morgan Freeman uh, and Ruby Rose. It is written and directed by George Gallo. Uh, you know him as the writer of Wise Guys and Midnight Run. This is, again, it is action-packed. It's uh, Ruby Rose plays a mother who is trying to escape her past as a run as a courier for the uh, Russian drug cartels. Morgan Freeman is a former cop that uh, Ruby Rose's character of Victoria sees more or less as a father figure. He was paralyzed on his left side due to getting shot in the line of duty. He lives very well, exceedingly well, better than any lawsuit money is going to get you even. Uh, and he taps her to do one thing to help him. One night. This takes place in the course of one night, multiple points. It is a visual stunner. Incredible scoring uh, by, Al, uh, by Aldo Schlaku. Um, I, I just, I love the film. And so much of it, Anastas Mikos is a cinematographer. He did... Films, you would not expect to see him do a film like Vanquish. He did Baggage Claim. He did Sparkle. He did Janie Jones, Mona Lisa's Smile, the reboot of The Women. And now here he is with this slick action film. The editing is one of the high points of Vanquish, Yvonne Gauthier. And I cannot recommend this highly enough. Um, Vanquish is in theaters on Friday. It goes on to digital VOD next week on the 20th and then on DVD on the 27th. Um, 
So hollow point you can see right now. Vanquish mark your calendars for Friday. And also on Friday, Jacob's Wife with Barbara Crampton and Larry Fessenden. And it is a, it is a tasty treat, to say the least. But now, let's switch gears here and welcome Tenny Fairchild to the show. Hi, Tenny. Hello. How are you? Tip-top yourself. Very happy to be talking to you about Vikes. Cool, Debbie. I mean, what in the world? Did you look into a crystal ball as to what was coming down the pike in the socio-political zeitgeist when you made Vikes? No, I couldn't imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm watching this film, and I'm like, I can't believe it's so prescient for the times we are in now and what has been transpiring, most notably over the past year, 18 months. Uh, And you were telling this story back in, what, 2016, 17, when you shot it. Yeah. You know, give the the listeners um, your take on what, what is the ba- the core story of Vikes? Well, it sort of uh, uh, satirizes political correctness a little bit, uh, and the general idea is it's it's more about individualism than um, uh, groups or racism, mm-hmm. so to speak. That idea being that one on one, you know, folks tend to see eye to eye. You know, even if they're not going to be lifelong buddies they're going to have commonalities that make it so they can hit it off just fine to get done what they need to get done. Yeah, and we really see that play out um, in Vikes. We have, we have our core story, our coming-of-age story of high school students Thorvald and Ida. And I have to tell you, Aiden Alexander and Sidney Sweeney are adorable. Absolutely adorable. Yeah, they're a cool combo platter, aren't they? Oh, my God. I mean, I know Aiden's work from a cowgirl story that he did with Bailey Madison. Oh, uh, yeah. So, to see, so I wasn't unfamiliar with him. But to see him here and the way that he and Sydney um, feed off of each other and to see where she's gone in her career since Vikes. I mean, she went on to Sharp Objects, Handmaid's Tale, um, very interesting, darker projects. <laughs> yeah, she's went for some yardage. And I'll tell you, boy, oh boy. But watching the two of them together, there is a lightness, there is a freshness, there is an, a youthful exuberance that is questioning while loving life that we're, we haven't seen too much of of late, which could definitely be due to the times we are in and what people are writing about and the stories they are telling. Um, but these two are the anchor of this film. And the way you build everything around them and this little community that they're in, it, 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 it's sweet. This fi- it's, it's sweet to watch this film. <laughs> well, I, I just sort of needed to make sure the lens cap was off. <laughs> when those two were were, were bombing around, because they're so easy to watch, you know, as you mentioned. And I would say there are probably more people out there like that than are having a tough time with yeah. stuff, luckily. I think you're right, 
but it's the it's the feel good stories we don't hear about. Yeah. And we need to see a lot of these lighter these lighter tones, but while their relationship and watching them has a frothiness to it, the other the people around them and the issues around them are not light and frothy, but you don't darken the film. You don't make it morose. You still keep it upbeat tonally, and I, I really appreciate how you do that. Oh, cool. Not, not necessarily by design. It's sort of like uh, Aiden's character, Torvald, is like a, um, like a Jimmy Stewart character. Yeah. You know, like, like the all-time great Christmas movie where all the characters around him are bigger than him. So all those uh, people that you were speaking of, the characters you were speaking of, influence uh, Torvald mm-hmm. and the direction he goes in. You know, Sydney, of course, among them, and, and obviously the lead one. But all of them on the periphery are kind of overpowering big people, and Aiden's like the everyman yeah. in the middle, Torvald. So that sort of whole, you know, what brings he and she together and to where they end up at the end of the story. Well, and, you know, talking about the people that are in, that surround Torvald in his orbit, um, I have to start with Carter Hastings as Sigranus. <laughs> he steals every scene he is in, Tenny. Why couldn't we see more of him? I am in, that kid is phenomenal. Well, he had stuff to do at the, towards the end of the story, as you know. Yes. So he, he, involved, he evolved into a, a different direction that's perhaps not surprising based on where he was at along the way. But he, he was an influencer, too, obviously. And the funny thing was, is, is, is Torvald is meant to be influencing Carter's character. Mm-hmm. But it's a little bit the other direction, too. Very much so. And, you know, for the listeners out there, Carter, you may not recognize him. But you know his voice because he is, he does voicing for animation all the time. Uh, the Grinch, he, you know, is Junie on the Spy Kids Mission Critical animated series, um, Finding Dory. He's been around, but this kid has so much screen presence. Oh, my God, Tenny, you struck gold with Carter. Well, he did it. He did it. And the, the great thing, too, Debbie, is he showed up off hook. He had every line memorized and, and versions you know therein so and he's on it. and you know watching the character of Sigranus that doesn't surprise me because that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly what Sigranus would be like yes uh, Carter dropped from the sky as Sigranus oh my god and then you've also got you bring in Miguel Nunez Jr as Manifestus, and I love the name. That, the play on that, Manifestus, Manifesto, is really great. Um, and you bring him in and throw away political correctness here, which I love. It's just, as you said, it's just people talking as he bonds with, as Manifestus unbeknownst to Torvald that this is Manifestus, this activist that he was looking for to help him with his petition to get rid of the 
the Vikings name from the local high school. Um, but watching Miguel and Aiden together, here again, it's charming. And to see, you know, this Norwegian, this young Norwegian boy, first generation American, um, with this young black man, and to see that commonality that you mentioned, and, you know, sitting and having dinner together uh, with the family, it's, it's wonderful to watch. He got some crackers, too. He got some crackers, too. Homemade crackers, no less. <laughs> yes. You know. they, they make them there. Yeah, I, I have to add, I, now look, I, I'm going to be very honest with you. Every film I see, I, sit, I watch through the credits, through the end credit. So it tickled me to no end to see that you have credited a Kringle Baker and a Lefsa Baker. Yes, I didn't know how to make that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get some paid professionals. I have never had Lefsa, but I have had Kringle before, and Kringle is delicious. Lefsa's good, too. But I just, I chuckled because reading the credits is so much fun sometimes when you really see the, the detail and the importance of, of certain people. And because Lefsa and Kringle play such, food plays a big part in this film, folks. Just so you know, food is a, plays a big part in this film. From Sagranus. Making a killing as a savvy businessman selling candy bars for five bucks a piece. He's a future enterpriser. <laughs> I'll tell you, boy, oh boy. Um, to Ida liking to grease the wheels of people in the hopes of getting them to sign Torvald's petition, taking around her corningware blue cornflower bowl filled with had the. Had to have that. Had to have that. You know, because that is. So, it's timeless. It speaks to a specific era, but it's also so timeless to have that specific cookware. <laughs> um, because you would expect uh, families, immigrants um, from the old country who come over and you recognize things like that. You recognize a, a, corn flu, a cornflower pattern. It reminds you of a Holland Blue Delft pattern. Um yeah. So I those little touches in this film, Tenny. Uh, I'm curious, working with your production designer with Steve Keller. You know how how did you go about developing the the production design, only to have it complemented through your cinematography, which is kept light and bright. Well, that's kind of a, uh, an important element too—the sort of light and brightness of it. It, it was yeah. kind of. Um, you know, to set it in a friendlier sort of uh, backdrop was cool. And then as far as just the elements and the propping go, whatever felt candid middle America without being sort of uh, it had to be sort of within it without being, hey, it's about this prop or it's about this thing. It had to seem natural. It had to seem like Torvald and Ida, you know, as you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, how candid they are. The design had to be that, and yeah, and I just love it because it's like I'm. I see the the Corningware there, and it's like to this day, probably sitting in my family's home, empty house, <laughs> um, it, on the top shelf in the corner kitchen cabinet is still my mother's old set of Corningware. 
Oh, yeah. And if ever I broke something as a kid, I had to go to the store to replace it. It had to be, you know, with something like that to come home with. Oh, yeah. You you can't. You break things like that. No, you have you so have not to go for yardage. Yeah, you, know, you have to bring back the original recipe. That's it. But I'll give you I'll give you one more thing too, Debbie, with the sort of like on lines of left and Kringle and junk like that. But it's a music thing. It is a Brita test ad who um, Pam Schaefer made part of her score is the uh, the player of the Hardanger fiddle. Oh wow! Hardang it anyways. Wow, your music—that's yeah, the original recipe too. That's the genuine <laughs> article, which is kind of cool to have. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about the music because the music is very unique. We're not going to hear this on on a soundtrack or in a score of any other movie out there. It really stands out. Well, we kind of wanted, like I was mentioning earlier, to have the the Norwegian sort of Scandinavian. Thread. There's a little bit of um, Scandinavian yodeling in there, mm-hmm. like you know, cattle calling and things like that. And then there's sort of an acapella thing that Pam did that sort of personifies sort of a light sort of thing that paces them because they stroll a lot, Torvald Nida, and it just sort of is in the the feeling of. The lighter thing I was speaking about earlier with the with the visual, the props, and everything else. So it's just a f- more of an upbeat kind of cadence to it, and simple. Mm-hmm. So again, it feels as conversational musically as Torvald and Ida do as they chat. Mm-hmm. And th- you mentioned something that's very important here that that I took note of. There is so much of this film is about kids walking. They're walking to the mall. They're walking down the street. They're walking door to door. Uh, they're chatting as they're walking. Uh, the neighborhoods are safe. Uh, you know, it, it's lovely to see that and then set in this light and bright uh, visual tone um, with the lighting and lensing. It's just, it's, again, it's something we don't see that often today. Oh, cool. Oh, one more thing, just as far as the picture went, just to get more of a Midwestern light, because we shot it out here, mm-hmm. is was just to desaturate everything a little bit to give it a, a more neutral, because the light is so strong, kind of hard out here. And so that was one just small extra thing to add to giving the look what it is. Yeah, because I know you shot up in, in Simi Valley, and this does, it does have a slightly diffused look to it such uh, something that you'd get with the midwestern sun versus a california coastal sun yeah and, and simi valley is great for oftentimes we shoot commercials there because with commercials they want things to be not you know geographically specific so you don't want palm trees and things like that and simi valley is that mm-hmm. looks like middle america could be anywhere well, Likewise, I know. Pasadena, part of Hancock Park, and things like that. Yeah. Where and we, we shot some downtown for this as well, and then we shot, um, oh, we lucked out with the, um, the school in Santa Monica, which happens to have their mascot as the Viking. So that, that worked out. <laughs> Look well at us. that. Yeah, every now and then things go, and which we needed to have on a little picture like this, so that was very fortunate. They were very cool to work with, too. You know, how difficult is it? 
to get a picture like Vikes made in today's climate for for indie filmmakers? Uh, when you're doing it, sometimes it feels tough. But in, in, in looking back on it, if you get a lot of people that are, are looking to you know do something, get something going, go out and have some fun, and they're like-minded, it's not super crazy. Mm-hmm. It's doable. And people do it all the time, and especially now, you know, everything's digital. You know, if it were film stock, it'd be a little sketchier. Yeah. Well, and, and something I have to point out for all the classic film fans out there, uh, as right now we would normally be in our traditional TCM Film Festival uh, mode, but because of lockdown, because of the pandemic, the festival is going virtual again this year in May. But one of our TCM favorites, Patty McCormick, is in your film. Yes. That's a get. She went, she went from the bad seat to a very kind Norwegian lady. <laughs> I know. I know. Patty's always such a joy. I love talking to her on the TCM Fest, uh, Film Festival carpet every year. Uh, so to see her, and then for me, to see Frank Kalees in there as Gunner, um, yeah. uh, you know, he is and forever will be, for me, Horace on Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. Uh, but you you bring in these characters that add flavor and texture to the film, and while it's premised upon this Norwegian old world community, you could drop this in any any kind of community. You could drop this in the German community in Philadelphia. You could drop it in the Italian community in New York. Um, the Irish communities, this would fit anywhere because you well, talk. That's the hope is that it translates a little bit. I th- I think it. Do- I really think it does. Uh, be- oh, cool. Because of the lightness, because of the casual nature of what we're seeing, nothing feels forced. It feels like we're watching two kid, two high school kids, just walking down the street chatting um you know hanging out and you've always got a kid like Sagranus running around and you've always got a couple you know campus bullies wearing their varsity letter jackets that do stupid things like want to shove somebody in the trunk of a car um that's that's you know 1950s happy days a little bit yeah you know a little bit of that it's Brady Bunch and all that good stuff that's just it, and I think that's something that everybody longs for right now, to see things like that. Yeah, I'm curious, what is taking the film so... Why has it, is it just now coming into everybody's... In, the, in their zeitgeist, in their visual frame? Oh, that's my fault. Shame on you. Yeah, I, I tried a, a different thing when we um, put the movie out initially, where I thought it'd be cool if we did... Like if all the kids just went on on social, so it made it seem that sort of grassroots, mm-hmm. and said, "Hey, you know, we're in this thing and and whatever," and just put out the word that way. But the, the movie's never been reviewed. Mm-hmm. You know, my fault. But again, with little movies like this, sometimes you can try things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought, you know, if it didn't work, which it kind of didn't, um, everyone would at least because they all did such great work 
they would have that going forward. They could always show a sample of how good and kind of candid and natural they were, so yeah, they'd have that. But I, I really kind of blew it. For shame. Did you learn your <laughs> lesson now for the next one? Yeah. Well, I'll try something different on the next one. <laughs> one cool thing about these little movies is you, you can try things, and that was one where I tried. You know, they, they were okay, and they did a great job in eight. You know, super visual, or excuse me, visible, you know, in, in uh, social media mm-hmm. and things like that. But, again, we they did pretty good, but we we could have gotten more people. My well, fault. Well, Anything it, you don't like about this movie can be traced directly back to me. Uh-oh. So. Uh-oh. <laughs> but, see, I love that. You're taking the rap. The buck stops with you, Tenny. Well, no, it was just more <laughs> a little thing I put together because I was curious about the story going back to what we were talking about initially Mm -hmm. and then um it all kind of grew from there and the the thing too is alternatively the good stuff like you mentioned you know with aiden and sydney torvald nida that's them like i said i just had to make sure the lens cap was off well and now give them the chemistry they showed up with the yeah they they would have been buddies whether i was there or not so well, That's the way that worked. I hope now, because Sydney has such a huge following, thanks to Sharp Objects and Handmaid's Tale, um, I hope people will now take a look at this film to see her earlier work and to see uh, the, the range that she has as an actor. That'd be cool. It's harder sometimes to be candid than it is to, you know, push it a little bit. Yeah. Because so, not as many people, once you throw them out there and they're doing it, you can sort of see them, you know, their training, whereas they just fell into it like a couple of buddies. Yeah, they're there. I love watching them on screen. I love watching them on screen. Um, Perfect. It is. And all credit due them one more time. So now what is next for you? Now that everybody can now see Vikes, what is next for you? Another project in the works? Another film? Well, I'm writing stuff. I've got um, two kind of smaller ones like this, and then another one that I'd need um, a little bit of help with with bigger players. Well, I can't wait to see what you bring us next. Oh, cool. I'm, I'm, either. I'm, I'm curious about it. I'm really anxious to see what you bring us next. Oh, thanks, Eddie. Tenny, this has been just a delight talking to you this morning. My pleasure. And And likewise. You better do it again. I want you again, so get to work. (laughs) Give it a try. All right. Thanks so much, Tenny. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good one. And that was Tenny Fairchild, writer, director, producer of Vikes. And you can see it right now. Uh, digitally, it's everywhere. It's sweet. It's sweet, it's light, and it's something that we need in these, in, in these times. It's a respite from the news. Um, so, we're going to switch gears again now. And Pam's sitting in there grimacing. I don't know if it's a grimace or a grin. Uh, we're going to switch gears now. And we're going to go, we're talking Voyagers here. There's my page. And we're going to start with 
Mike's my pre-recorded interview, my exclusive with with writer director Neil Berger, talking about this story, the impetus for the story, his development, and coming up how to bring all these themes to life within the visual confines and structure of the film. Uh, not to mention fabulous score. Uh, we get into that as well. So take a listen for yourselves. Neil Berger talking about Voyagers. Hey, Neil. Hey, Debbie. How are you? Well, I'm very happy to be talking to you again. The last time we got to chat was for The Upside. That's right. That's right. I'm always happy to talk to somebody that has something to do with behind the lens. And that's one of the great things about your films, Neil. Um, Sought in Divergent as we talked about with Divergent and then the upside and what you did with the adaptation of that. Just absolutely wonderful. And of course your visuals with, with Limitless and now with Voyagers, wow. This is action packed, it's exciting. Beyond that though, it's thought provoking. And it all starts with the blank canvas that you give us, that you and Scott and Enrique have designed with the bright white on white on white anything can happen and as we get into this story it's entirely up to these young people on this mission as to as to how they're going to paint that canvas be it with the primal instincts with wreaking havoc and throwing blood splatter everywhere or with the buoyancy of life and finding out what it is to be human and finding a balance. And it's so stunning to watch this. Thank you. You know, where did you start with this project, Neil? Because this is this is a really interesting premise. And so much of that premise is tied into that visual design and the claustrophobic nature of these lengthy corridors that in their own, no pun intended, seem limitless. Well, the, the way, you know, it's hard to, you know, sometimes you start when you get like some fragment of a story or a complete story or, um, you know, for this, which was an original idea, I, through the, I just remember having these couple of images pop into my head, which was these young people on a spacecraft, which is there's not I don't know why I was thinking about that, but some who looked like they were kind of exhausted after some kind of exertion, you know, just sort of disheveled, zoned out, sitting on the floor of this cramped spacecraft. And I thought, what's that? And then there was another image of them kind of chasing a, 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 another crew member down the ship's narrow corridor, like animals, and then beating him to death. So, and I was like, whoa, what, what's that all about? And from that, I kind of, you know, teased out a, a story of, of what that, what, why would they, why would they be there? Because I was interested, I was like, well, I'd like to see that, these people who were kind of sort of zoned out in, in space. And, um, and so, so then I sort of created a story and then understood other aspects of the story and then saw it in a, you know, in a kind of a, you know, in the context of genre. And then from that, 
and, and those sort of and also conceptual ideas of, or thematic ideas about like okay about human nature and human nature in a vacuum and sort of are these some pure humans and then, so then from that a, a design began to develop which was to keep it um, you know very minimal very confined very claustrophobic um, and on top of that as you mentioned that white you know everything being white in the background so it's almost like we're in a laboratory or mm -hmm. something like that we're in a petri dish um, so and then you know I wanted it based on reality so that all worked with that in the sense of you know the, any kind of real voyage that would be interstellar or multi-generational you know they have to work on conserving weight and you know they have to limit what they can bring and it the ship has to be as small as possible so that worked together with you know keeping it real actually worked in concert with sort of the the other idea the visual ideas that i was already having mm -hmm. you know one of the interesting aspects here with the story itself and the and the thematics is the idea of evil and an alien and you really tap into our thought processes watching this you know is the evil what comes from within each of us is the evil coming to the forefront in Zach is he the embodiment of that or is the evil the sheeple nature of people that blindly follow things and I really love that exploration that you do and I'm curious how you walk the line without telling everybody how to think because you so you keenly avoid that here you don't tell us as moviegoers as the audience who's right who's wrong what to think um, you leave it to our own devices but you walk that line of showing us that primal evil and I'm curious how you found that balance well, I'm always interested in walking that fine line. I mean, you can see it in even, even, say, The Illusionist, where it's like, is he, does he have supernatural powers, or is it all just a trick? And I always wanted to be able to be read both ways, you know, that you could believe both things. Um, and in this, the same way, is there, is there an alien on the outside? Certainly it fits in with the genre of sci-fi. Of course there's an alien outside. Um, and but I also like how the characters, particularly Zach, how he deals with that, how he uses the fear of that um, to his own advantage. And to me, fear is a big theme in the movie, mm -hmm. how it overtakes you, how it consumes you, how you lose all rational sense of, you know, of things and start making bad decisions, and, and also how it can be exploited. And, and that goes, you know, into what you were saying about, about evil, you know, how, how how somebody can use that for their own devices or, or or maybe he isn't maybe he's right in what he's doing he's really you know the crew seem to think that he's protecting them and it seems like he is um at the beginning and maybe you would even want to follow him he's a strong leader and um so but i really like walking that fine line where the, is he right or is he wrong or is he's kind of right but you know i don't like his methodology anyway it just feels more real to me mm -hmm. than like what, what life is yeah, I mean, I really love how you play that. What helps fuel that is also Naomi's editing. Once you hit like the 33, 39, right in, in that six-minute window, from there it becomes almost a horror thriller. 
as to what starts unfolding. And I've got to say, your pacing and the tautness and tension that, that the two of you come up with in the editing process is spectacular. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned Naomi. And Naomi Garrity is my longtime editor, and she's worked on all, you know, almost all of my mm-hmm. films. And she's become my, you know, real partner in putting putting them together. And um, you know, at this point, we just kind of finish each other's sentences and know each other's sort of instincts and visual instincts and narrative instincts. And so, but you're right; it does become. You know, it almost becomes like a horror movie yep. at the end in the way it's sort of for a, certainly a psychological terror movie, you know, the way it sort of hurdles forward. And, um, you know, I like that, you know, in the same way that we have those shots going down the hallway, yeah. they're just sort of these, they're kind of putting pressure on the whole, on the characters and on the narrative and on just the feeling. It's like something's happening. It's going to happen with or without you. It's moving forward and hurtling forward and there's nothing you can do about it i love that yeah it's spectacular and you mentioned hurtling and i gotta say i mean applause applause to you and enrique and the camera crew with the rig to get those cameras just speeding down the hallway after the kids as they're when they're running when they're in conflict absolutely it takes your breath away and puts us in the moment it's so dynamic and I find that really interesting to be happening on a quote-unquote spaceship. Yeah. Well, it was something that was very important to me to kind of have that, you know, as I just said, it was sort of almost like a thematic thing to be pushing down that hallway. And it works as something that feels scary. It works as something that feels exuberant when they're running wild and they're happy and they have this sense of wild abandon we're moving with them. And then it also has this sense of time that we're just moving forward on this, you know, on this timeline that's represented by the hallway, and you see that at the end. Um, yeah, and it was amazing. Enrique, you know, was a great partner. He's the director of photography, the photography, and you know, we wanted to. The sets are very minimal, and the clothing is very minimal, and so we wanted to have create a sense of a dynamic camera move, sort of offset that that minimalism in other aspects of the design um and you know so we came up with this this hallway and rigged you know there's actually there's a track in that ceiling that just in that hallway was you know 250 feet long and three feet wide and those guys are really running down it and the, that camera could move about 30 miles an hour in that hallway and it was um you know it was exciting and slightly dangerous and um and but i think really effective visually oh it it is spectacular i love watching those sequences in the film and you have so many of them so i was like a little pig in heaven but you know you a very very wise choice bring enrique in and what i love is to see something like europa report that is on a spaceship but it's very it's very phil it's very cluttered it doesn't have the clean the clean blank canvas the clean lines that we see here to see that contrast in his work is really exciting he's super talented oh my god i love i love enrique he's always such a joy but you know hand in hand with all of this that is so often overlooked or it becomes essentially a trope in a film like this is your score Trevor's score has such a so many layers of an ominous beat to it. 
I'm curious about your discussions with him and what you were looking for musically and sonically. Because you also have some really great sound design here with sound, the sounds within the ship, the sounds outside. And, you know, the decibel levels waver and vacillate with that. But then you get the, the ominous notes of this score. So I'm curious what you were looking for from Trevor. Well, initially, you know, Trevor is a fairly young composer. He's just done a handful of things before before I had met him. And But what I had heard, I really liked, um, you know, especially like on the Goldfinch, which was, you know, it's a, a, a particular movie and he brought something really special to it. And I had something in my head, a very ominous chord that was sort of implied all sorts of existential dread in it. And I just sort of told him about it and 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 also this kind of uh, a sound that was, well, he, so, so I told him about it and then, and he was kind of auditioning for the role. And so he wrote some music that he then sent back to me. And I was just like, it, it is the exact music that's in the beginning of the, the movie is what, what, he, what he auditioned with, because it was so right on the money. And that sort of, I can't think of the right word to describe it. It's sort of like that squiggling, violin you know kind of sawing sound it's under like there's that shot in the beginning of like the sperm kind of squirming around and it's, mm -hmm. it's such a kind of unnerving sound and that's what i wanted i wanted the movie to have this kind of sense or i wanted the music to have this sense of unease that it brought to the movie that something was something was wrong and that and that and also that we were dealing in sort of powerful themes of of human nature and of good and evil and um uh and i thought that he just he just came back with music that was just exactly what i had in my head and and better and um uh and then he created these other themes that were you know later in the movie that are quite beautiful during the spacewalk and you know for the ending and and uh so i was just so lucky to have have found him as a composer. Oh, that the final act and that the final sequences as we go into the future are just musically so beautiful. But I, I love that the two of you stayed away from what a lot of directors might have done, which is go with all synth um, to give that sci-fi kind of vibe to it. Yeah. And the two of you didn't do you that. Know, it's orchestral. It's orchestral mm -hmm. full on. There might be some strange electronic sounds in there on a, on a particular layer, but it's 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 a big orchestra that mm -hmm. was recorded in Europe, and it was amazing. It's fabulous. One last question for you then, Neil. I've got to ask you about your exemplary casting. I mean, you've got Lily Rose Depp. Lily is the heart of this film. You've got Ty, who comes into his own as an adult actor here and just soars. But the balance in the casting of each of these individuals, how challenging was this to find this perfect ensemble? Because this is truly an ensemble with each one interdependent, codependent on the other. Yeah, it was, I mean, that was the, the, the key. It wasn't going to work unless these, these, they were, we found the right actors who were going to give great, great performances. And also, they needed to be able to do something which was to be 
seemingly devoid of personality in the mm-hmm. beginning. You know, they're all, they're very shut down and they have no cultural references. And that was sort of an interesting thing for them to find. And also to find the right people who you could, would believe were just kind of turned off inside. Um, and as you say, Ty Sheridan, I mean, he's such a pro and such a great actor and a really great human being. But, um, and brought such an amazing sense of empathy, you know, as he's struggling for, you know, between goodness and selfishness. And then, as you said, Lily Rose, I mean, she's the real find here. I mean, obviously, we lots of people know about her, but she's been in some movies that she's been really good in, but we haven't quite seen her like this. And, um, uh, and she, as you say, she becomes the heart of the movie with just this really, you know, deep soulfulness that she brings to her, you know, to her, her situation. Um, and Finn Whitehead is amazing. He's so, you know, he's such a good villain, really. He, he's, and he's so funny because he's so not that, actually. He's a really funny guy, but he's um, and, and a lovely man, but uh, he, he, he's perfect for this. And then Shantae Adams, who plays Phoebe, kind of the voice of reason and... Um, Again, she's playing somebody who's really shut down emotionally, um, yet has this real sense of duty and of and of goodness that um, you know that she brings. Anyway, it was they they were amazing. And of course, and of course, you've got Colin Farrell, who has a totally different vibe from the kids, and he is perfection as the empathetic, sympathetic father figure. Neil, amazing! I love this film. I love this film, and it's been wonderful to talk to you again. I can't wait for the next one. So nice to talk to you, yes. Okay. We're coming. And that was Neil Berger talking about Voyagers. And as you heard us mention, Ty Sheridan is outstanding. He plays the character of Christopher, Lily Rose Depp. Uh, You can see her right now also in the film Crisis, in which she is outstanding. But she truly is, as Sela, she is the heart of Voyagers. And Finn Whitehead, he as Zach, he truly is a wonderful villain. Um, just an outstanding cast. And, of course, Colin Farrell uh, is the father figure for all these kids uh, on this ship. And th- watching the dynamic and watching the personality traits between him, who had a fully fleshed out, life on earth and these kids that know nothing and are emotionless it's striking and it really sets the stage for some thought-provoking discussion but now you've heard what neil had to say about creating voyagers how about if we take a listen to production designer scott chambliss and how he had to work with white on white zero gravity 200-foot-long, three-foot-wide corridors, which in order where all the lighting, five miles of track lighting had to be built in to accommodate cinematographer Enrique Chidiak's work, as well as there's a main corridor where a good portion of the film takes place. And there is, there is a track that runs the entire 200 feet uh, of the corridor. And Enrique had it. A camera, cameras attached to it, and could just send it flying down, chasing after these youthful kids. Uh, and it's a good thing these are, ki- you know, youth is is the watchword here, 
because old folks like me, we would never make it down 200 foot long hallway running at top speed or even 30 miles an hour, which is what the camera was running at to keep up with the kids. So without any further ado, yes, we are we are doing an extra half hour of the show today just for Voyagers. So take a listen. Production designer Scott Chambliss talking about Voyagers. Well, I'm so happy to be speaking with you again. The last time we got to chat was for Tomorrowland. Oh, good heavens. That was a lifetime ago. A lifetime. <laughs> it feels like after the past year, it feels like multiple lifetimes ago. Yeah, I would agree with you there. <laughs> I have to congratulate you I am on Voyagers. I have been loving your work going all the way back to Krippendorf's tribe. No way. <laughs> On, yes way. Yes way. That means, Debbie, you know too much. <laughs> <laughs> it means I'm old. Um, <laughs> well, that makes two of us, then. <laughs> uh, and watching, you've got this great affinity for sci-fi you have developed over the years with Cowboys and Aliens, you know, the Star Trek movies, you know, even plunging into some of the ideolo ideology and things that pop up in MI3 and Alias. But, you know, what you have done here, you know, I take I look at something like Guardians of the Galaxy 2, where you had to build upon an existing world, something you'd already done with Star Trek. And it is so intricate and so detailed. And then I look at Voyager's. And it is so stripped down, so uh, robotic and emotionless, but a, a total blank canvas. But then yeah. you really get to see the detail that you had to incorporate into this production design for the film itself to work. And i got to tell you, Scott, what you came up with design-wise with the corridors, with the, the more or less the modular feel of the compartments, robotic, expressionless, everything is white, so it's like a blank canvas. And the modular designs feel like, you know, co compartments in the minds of these kids as they're growing up. And they can be, you get a sense they can be rearranged, much like, the emotions and the minds of these kids. They can also be totally removed. So you have this great metaphor happening with your design. And then you pull off, I think the only other time I've seen anything this intricately done with production design and lighting was Danny Boyle with Sunshine integrating miles and miles and miles of lights for Enrique to adjust the lighting for the cinematography. There is so much nuance here in your design, and then it all looks fabulous. I am I am so in love with your production design of Voyagers of this ship. Thank you. It sounds like you you really appreciate the movie, which is nice to know. I haven't seen it yet, I, so I don't I don't know if it holds up or if it's any good. Or what do you think? Is it a decent movie, Debbie? I think it's excellent. I mean, I'm an admirer of Neil's work. Um, Neil and I have chatted multiple times over the years. Uh, I like his vision here, and I think the vision is fully executed. And oh, so much of this film, though, the real energy here, because of the starkness of the design, 
the superficial starkness of it and the white on whites and the cleanliness and the claustrophobia of that very narrow corridor and the small modules uh, that people are in. It falls on Enrique and his camera movement celebrating and capturing what you've done to really create the energy here. Those pull-out ceiling panels that you've got, so he could run a tra so you can run a track in there to just send the camera zooming down a corridor is one of the coolest effects, and it works so well. Okay. And you're on oh, you're on tenter hooks as you're watching this, wondering, oh my god, are they going to run into a wall? What's around the corner? What's happening? <laughs> you really feel that sense of fleeing and fear and. It just works on every level, Scott. Let me ask you this. Since since you've seen it and you, you clearly understand where all of us were coming from, and I really appreciate the detail in which you're sharing it with me. Um, I really appreciate that. So what I wound up doing toward, you know, in the last quarter, in the last act really of the show, was breaking through the white barrier and getting kind of primal in color big color blocking toward the end until we go to red and black and then around the space and all that stuff. Does it work or is it so jarringly different that it pops you out of the story when the, the huge colors come off the no, scene? No, it works really well because by this point we have had the full-on emotional breakdown and or breakthrough, however you want to look at it, of these kids. You need something jarring to show that to really set it apart. And I think it works really well because I'm watching it and as I see color pop in and come in and we've got red, we've got warning. You know, red is always stop. You know, something something is happening. I think it works because it really, their minds are undergoing this huge expansion and explosiveness. We need to feel that and that works really well. I'm glad. That's that's good to hear. It was it was a little bit risky, and I'm glad you appreciated it. Yeah, it it works so well. Just like with your interior designs, you take a look at the at Richard Colin Farrell's module, where he lives, and it has a different feel than some of the others. It feels sure. it has a more earth, earth friendly, life force to it. Where with, you know, touches of home and history, whereas the rest of the ship, there is no history. They have no history, no emotional grounding. And that is so reflected in your work. I'm really curious how you and Neil went about, and you in particular, approaching this to come up with this very workable, very metaphoric design. You know, it's, of course it started with Neil, he's the writer-director, and his, his premise simply is that these uh, gigantic multinational institution owns the space program on the planet right now, and they basically created their own human beings to do their bidding. So it's an institutionalized corporate creation, um, and that, that right there says, everything I needed to get started with. And um, you just, along the way, figure out how to tell the story and how to help the characters evolve within the really strict 
confines of every aspect of their environment needing to have that very cold institutionalized DNA, really. Um, and it's, as we were working on the show and designing the larger spaceship starting, you know, in broad strokes, and then refining and giving character and detail and expanding the nature of the personality of this corporate monster, um, the, the characteristics and the repeated visual gestures that, that all together created an, an overall meaning for these kids' lives revealed itself. And things as basic as levels uh, in the, the mess hall, that's a two-story set uh, simply because if they metaphorically go to another level in their mm -hmm. experience, they, they break away from the flat, one-dimensional lives they've been living up to this point, and somebody risks opening a door or taking a step upward or something like that metaphorically, and you're, in, you're in, on a new playing field that you didn't really understand existed. That's what they experience internally, but I wanted to, to have a space within the ship where we could visualize that break in the living plane for them. Um, but still, it, it, the language, the visual language of it is completely in keeping with the overall corporate institutional thrust of it. Absolutely. Um, you know, and I love the two-story in the mess hall in the dining area because that's where blue comes into play. Yeah, um, it does. And, and that's where these kids gathered start to shake things up. Mm-hmm. And it also allows for that idea of superiority as they start coming up with their own internal structure, especially especially with the character of Zach, who, you know, loves, he really loves that second level, man. I got to tell you. <laughs> Neil has him making such great use of that, and he grabs the, ra the handrails, and he stands there, almost very much like a Hitler dictatorial kind of moment. Or yeah. Mussolini or something. And yeah. so I really love that. And then, of course, you you have to, besides the cleanliness and the, the utilitarian nature of the hallways and structure, you then, the systems room is fabulously created. I love that systems room. Oh, cool. That is just, uh, I would love to just explore that whole room. I'm glad you like that. I really like that. But, you know, it gives some life. And then as we go climbing within the bowels, behind the walls, it's almost as if with the way you have the piping designed in there and laid out, the tiers and all, it's almost like the arterial system in the human body. Right. That's, that was the idea. It really comes across and... With the reveals, it either it, time so perfectly with different reveals that the kids are, are experiencing in their minds. But that contrast, that visual contrast you create, is it works so well, taking us into the heart of everything. Thanks. Man, you really saw the movie. How many times did you see it? Once. Wow. I'm so impressed. Yeah, this one I've only, I've only seen once so far. 
I will see it again just because there is so much in there to see and to experience from a character standpoint that plays on the core that you have designed. Because this, this is a situation where production design is so key and that this utilitarian institutionalized nature of it, the blank canvas idea is so critical to this story unfolding and these characters developing. I think more so than in a film like Tomorrowland or Guardians of the Galaxy 2, um, because there's so much happening there, and you know your eyes go off as as you know we're looking at Ravager ships and and this kind of stuff. But here, our attention is so closely focused. Yeah, that's true, and that's I mean that's the pleasure of doing something like Voyagers, which is a you know it's a chamber drama basically, and the environment. It exists to allow the drama to flourish, whereas something like Guardians of the Galaxy is basically a series of amusement park rides. So mm -hmm. they're, the tasks are completely different. Because of the, the construction here and your design and what Enrique needed to do from a camera standpoint and a lighting standpoint, how did you go about coordinating with him? on your design in terms of the lighting and his camera needs to get some fluidity in a tight space? That, you know, that wasn't complicated because for that, for that kind of set to work in any plausible way, all the lighting has to be designed into it, period. That's a given. Otherwise, it's not a, you know, it's not a real spaceship if that is a part <laughs> of the conception of the environment. And when it com comes to the long corridor that was primary to Neil and how he was envisioning the story. That long corridor was the first thing that existed in his mind and also the need to have the camera track to be able to speed down it and for us to find the longest stage we possibly could and fill, you know, run the whole length of it with that, which which we did. In terms of, of the rest of either Enrique's needs that would you know, be in addition to having a fully lit and in, integrated environment for lighting. Um, if he had special camera positions he wanted to get to that we didn't accommodate for in the space itself, then we, you know, create that that opportunity. And because everything is modular, it's easy to pop out a panel or create a new detail that we can stick a camera lens into. Um, any of that was a possibility. and. I think another part of um, his challenge that he created for himself was to not break the walls of the spaceship. Mm -hmm. so to keep a sense of reality and, and confinement, he, he did everything he could to work within and move within the actual paths of place. And I think that gives the movie its own kind of realistic energy. Mm -hmm. you know, what kind of research did you need to do or have to do on this one? Because now, you know, space travel is becoming more, quote-unquote, commonplace in the minds of a lot of people. You know, we got Branson, we've got Elon, they're all talking about, okay, we're going to send, you know, passengers up into space. You know, the world has been riveted on what's happening on Mars. And I know that NASA has had, you know, designs in place for decades idealized designs of what would be needed, you know, how can we craft a ship? And we've seen so much of this on film over the years, but everything is always very 
cluttered. Here, life is unfettered. It's very basic. It's simple. Again, utilitarian. It's, you know, take what you need. You're not, you're, you're not packing, you know, for winter, spring, summer, and fall here. So I'm, I'm curious if you had to or had a chance to do research into actual science plans, NASA plans, and some of the other companies as to what they were envisioning. Yeah. Well, that's um, not uh, advanced plans from NASA or the, they, it's just two, they have two different agendas. You know, the NASA was trying to get into space and at, at their peak, they had no sense of let's design this to look groovy the way that Elon Musk is doing with his work and Branson's doing with his. Those are basically, you know, luxury travel ships and ideas that they're promoting. Um, this, our story is much more like prison, really like a corporate white collar prison. And I just kept my focus in my research process on corporate environments and institutional environments, scientific labs and prisons themselves. And um, went from there. Wow. Any field trips to prisons involved here? <laughs> no, but we did have a uh, field trip to the SpaceX plant in, um, I think it's in Irvine. Mm -hmm. And they were still working on the capsule that they sent for their first manned journey in July. We got to actually sit in the simulator for that, which were the units that they wound up putting in the capsule. And they ran the whole program for Neil and I sitting in the um, space chairs. It was fascinating and just seeing how they design and engineer and what their working environment uh, is was informative for us it was it was a whole lot groovier than our um, world was going to be but there was an organization to it that that was appreciable and um, organization was key to our environment for voyagers well, and in the third act, uh, the second half of the third act, we really see that organizational aspect come into play. When that unraveled too. <laughs> yes, unraveled. But we also, we also, you know, we see the organizational. We see organization on two different levels. The one level, nobody should be organized like that. On the on the other level, you know, it's very productive and efficient. Yeah. So I mean, it works so beautifully. How did you incorporate? I love the computer screen aspect, that virtual computer screen aspect throughout the ship. Oh, cool. How did you incorporate that? Because that, that is so cool. That's the way to describe it. <laughs> that was really fun to develop. Um, it, you, there has to be an interactive and informational source uh, for those people in that kind of environment. It's like driving a car. You need your dials and, you know, your screens and your readouts and all that stuff. So we knew playback was going to be part of it. In terms of developing the visual style of the playback for the ship, that I did with a company called CompuHire that's based in London. And I'm working with them right now as well on the project that I'm doing. So I was working with a couple of artists there in particular and feeding them ideas and visual references and a notion that um, it's kind of reductive but in addition to having a, a very corporate cold feel I also wanted a level of abstraction 
and of movement that was accessible and really engaging, but you weren't really sure what it was telling you. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a language that if you're one of the characters, you would understand, but we can't quite get there. So it's, it's not so rooted in our own visual graphic accessible language that it it doesn't feel real to the story that was it and i also wanted it to have its own personality and there was we talked about allowing the graphics to evolve in a way as the ship itself was starting to break down a little and we didn't pursue that very much because it started to feel gimmicky and also started would start to draw us more into a camera pointing at a screen itself than either of us wanted for the movie. I think cameras pointing at screens is kind of deadly. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's where it came from. Well, and, and what I what I love, because we've seen that kind of quote-unquote virtual screening, uh, computer screening before. We've seen it in Guardians of the Galaxy. We've seen it in Star Trek. We've seen it in so many things. But it's always colorful. You know, in Star Wars, it's always green and we're filling in the maps like where is luke skywalker hiding and it's all green and in guardians of the galaxy we've got green and red and uh almost star lord and dax you know uh, and thor you know going back and forth with color but here you keep it in that grayscale for the most part so it really feels connected to the ship good yeah that certainly was the intention, and my my only regret was with the, the display screens we were working with and the technology that we could manage on that budget. We couldn't quite get the whites of the backgrounds of the screens to match the white walls of the ship, which was my you know, ultimate ideal. That it was almost a seamless flow, but mm-hmm. that wasn't that wasn't possible technically. What finish did you actually have on the ship? That white, what kind of finish did you have on there? Was it just paint? Was it a gloss paint? Because that finish is so sleek and so cool looking. Yeah, it's a, it's just using the right materials for it. It's, the walls are MDF, which is a super smooth product. And then we gave it a, a several, several spray coats of paint and then a, a gloss finish. It, it looks spectacular. It looks like if water hits it or blood, it's just going to beat up and just drip off. Good. And that part, another part of that effect is just there's so much light in that <laughs> that everything bounces. Well, and how much of that is also due to the... Because how wide was that main corridor? Was it three feet it was, wide or something? Yeah. Wow. A total of wall-to-wall three feet, and they, their walking uh, area was just over two feet wow but it's that reflective light the light bouncing off that really at it really pops cool i just have one quick question for you before you run did you have to design the exterior also because we do have the spacewalk sequence yeah um i designed uh an overall of the ship and then that um, bit of the ship where we're doing the spacewalk. I don't know how uh, how it might have changed in post since I haven't seen it, so I, I really can't say if what you see on the screen is what I designed or not. Oh, well, it looks really cool, I can tell you that. Oh, good. Well, then I designed it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Scott, thank you so, so much. 
This is an yeah, absolute joy talking to you about this film. Well, you too. Thanks so much, and I'm so impressed by your enthusiasm for it. It makes me hopeful for the film itself. Thank you so much, and I hope we don't go Thank another you. lifetime before talking again. Me too. Thanks so much, Debbie. Take care. <laughs> And that was Scott Chambliss, production designer of Voyagers. And as I said, I also spoke with the third part, the third prong of this triumvirate of crea- of creative artisans, uh, Enrique Chidiak, the cinematographer. And his interview will be out later this week, along with both of these uh, on BehindTheLensOnline.net. So put it in your calendars, see Voyagers. Next week, I'm looking forward to next week, we're talking Jacob's Wife, horror, horror, with Barbara Crampton and Larry Fessenden. I already spoke with them and their director, Travis Stevens. Uh, And boy, I got some good stuff I'm cutting together for you for next week from those uh, those three and especially especially Barbara and Larry our regular listeners know uh, Barbara and Larry have both done the show live before multiple times uh, and I adore them both and this film Jacob's Wife which opens on Friday it is a marriage made in horror heaven absolutely love the film love their performances and Barbara just soars she is a scream um, so looking forward to that. And then we're also going to be joined by writer, director, Tanner Beard to celebrate the 10th anniversary of his film, which is being released legend of hell's gate. So we got, we're talking horror and we're talking possibly a horrific Western. So that is more than all the time we have for today. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is. Behind the Lens.